Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church this fine, frosty morning. We are so glad that you have braved the elements to join us today, and we are grateful for all of those of you who are joining us from the warm comfort of your home. We do pray that God will meet with you and speak to you in the way that you need to hear from Him this morning. I got to tell you just in in a preface to this whole sermon that this was not an easy passage for me this week. When I put the outline of the passages with Nathan together of what we were going to do, this one felt like the most obvious. This one felt like everything was pretty lined out. It was pretty clear cut. You know, a lot of people like to say the plain reading of the text. Uh, But what I find is often the case is when I start plainly reading the text, it isn't as plain as what I thought it was. That maybe some of what I'd assumed in the past wasn't necessarily what I am seeing as I look at it in depth in the present. And I actually had a whole sermon that was ready by Wednesday morning that I came in and looked at and was like, that is terrible. None of it is useful. And I threw all of it away and started over Wednesday after lunch. The Lord would not let me go forward with what I had. I could not get any more traction. And so this is actually the second draft of this sermon, and I'm trusting that God will speak to us, that we are going to, as we always do here at First Baptist Church, Robin tells me when I talked to her, I was like, oh, nobody gets upset about this. But she's pointed out that this is the norm now, so you all are used to this, that that when we look at the text, sometimes what we've thought for years and years and years and the assumptions that we make are not accurate. And and sometimes what we need to do is, is take a step back and consider what is the text really trying to say to us? What is God really trying to communicate? Not what do we want this text to say, but what is God trying to say to us through it? What does it actually say? The text did not say what I wanted it to say this week, but we're going to dive into it and let it say what God chooses to say to us and through us this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we ask him to speak to us this morning. Father God, I do thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that it still speaks to us today. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to look at your word with open minds, with faithful hearts, trusting your Holy Spirit to speak to us in the ways that we need to hear from you. Lord, understanding that your word is eternally relevant. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would remind us of what you continue to do. Not just what you've done or what you are going to do, but what you are doing in these moments, in these days, in the world right now. So speak to us as we look at your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Can anybody tell what these are from where you're at? Candy, but does anyone know what kind of candy they are? No, I heard it. Where was it? Now and laters. Anybody had these before? That now and laters are, they're not as common anymore, but they used to come in like, like they were a, a, a challenger to Starburst or whatever it was for a while. You know, they're, they're like little uh, taffy canes. I think according to the website, they are a quote, penny taffy. They are a quote, a penny taffy that, that people were to take along with them that would give them a pick-me-up when they needed it either now or later. 
right? They normally came in a package of like eight to 10 or whatever. I can't remember. I wasn't old enough to know before you got them in bulk, but that's what I'm told. And, and so, the, but the idea is in the, the title, right? They're, they're supposed to be a pick me up when you need it, either now or later. As a matter of fact, on their website, this is their slogan, bright and bold, long lasting and chewy, tiny and tasty. Any time is a good time to enjoy a now and later, like right now, for example. One part of that is true, that right now is a good time to enjoy a now and later. I've always thought that they would be more accurately called now and nows. I mean, that would be what I would call them uh, because I actually looked today, I didn't know what the serving size, but according to this gigantic bottle or jar of now and laters, the suggested serving size is three. Three. I don't know how it works for you, but the suggested serving size is useless to me. I never pay attention to it. You know what the actual serving size is? However many of these I can eat before I throw up. That is the serving size. And the truth is, that's the reality for me with just about any candy. However many I have in my possession at that point in time, that's the serving size, right? If you didn't want me to eat all of them, you shouldn't have put them all in one cohesive container. I want to keep that good stuff coming, right? Like I, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want the good vibes. I don't want that pick-me-up to end. I want to ride the high as long as I can. And, and that's the reality of the human experience is we don't want the good time to end. We don't want the good taste to go away. We don't want the good feeling to stop. We want to do whatever we can to keep that high running as much as possible. We want, we want to keep those, those good feelings in the now. We don't want to wait till later. Interestingly enough to me, that paradigm shifts when we begin looking at the truth of Scripture. The truth is that there's a lot of Scripture, there's a lot of verses. As a matter of fact, most of them have both what we would call a now and later component. That there's a reality in the text of something that God is doing right now, and there's a reality in the text of something God is doing later. A lot of times, though, we like to look at the text and we think of it as later and later. Like the, the only now component is what God did for us at salvation. And it's almost as if God said it and forget it. Like we, we get saved and our eternal destiny is sealed. And so now we just wait for later when God actually does something significant in our lives. Now you, you may be sitting in, in your seat shaking your head saying, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how we do things. That's not how we think. But is it not though? I, I mean, how, how, think of, and, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not disparaging that, but so much of our hope, so much of our understanding of how and when God is going to work is thrown off into some day later. That God will eventually do something. That God will eventually move. That God will eventually work. And I think part of that's because we don't see the grandeur or what God's doing behind the scenes. But I think part of it is because we're expecting all of it to come in one big chunk. And that's part of what we're going to see here in Revelation 21. We like to think of it as being a one big chunk thing, right? That, that, God, that, that God 
supernaturally and divinely drops a divine city of perfection from heaven to earth. And in one fell swoop, heaven has come to earth and all of our suffering is over. And I think there's a piece of that. But what is the point for this text in our lives right now? Has God simply given up on the world in which we live? The more I read and study God's word, even the book of Revelation, the more I am becoming convinced that God's desire uh, is for us to experience his redemptive work and to participate in his restorative work on this plane of existence. Both now and yes, later. Too often, however, I think we miss the now because we're so fixated on later. Today, I want to look at this passage and talk about something that we look forward to as being something that will come later, and I think the ultimate fulfillment will come later, but something that I think God is also seeking to do in us and through us right now. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, when we think about this text, again, we think of it as being this futuristic event. I mean, I'll, I'll admit, even this week as I went to it, that was my assumption, that, that when I thought of God making all things new, that ultimately this was the final restoration of creation. And I think there's a piece of that in here, that there are clearly things that, that, that God is casting forward to the future, but I, I think it's also a work in progress, as is the case with so many things in, in Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism and, and there's a lot of like coding that goes on and, and things that we've got to try to understand. And I confess to you that there are many things in Revelation, while there are many that are wiser than me and smarter than me, that would say they have a firm understanding of nobody really understands the full depth of Revelation. But I have come to believe that the, that the primary point of revelation is not just something God is going to do in the future, but a motivation tool to keep us active and busy doing God's work right now. 
Yes, God is coming back. Yes, the reality of the world is going to continue to turn and continue to be bad. There will be wars. There will be terrible things that happen, but God is still God. God is still on the throne and Christ is still working for the redemption of humanity. But here in Revelation chapter 21, we do see something interesting happen. We see something that's quite a scene for John to have as a vision would be something for us to see in reality. We see that there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Well, why are a new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem necessary? A new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem are necessary because the old ones are broken. A new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem are necessary because the old ones are broken. Our world is undeniably broken. I mean, honestly, is there anybody in the room that wants to argue that fact with me? Then, ah, everything seems to be pretty good. It's in great working order right now. And I mean from top to bottom. I don't mean just in in humanity's actions. Absolutely, that's part of it. But but even in the way that the world turns and, and things that happen in creation itself, there's a brokenness inherent in our world. And John is given this vision, this glorious vision of God renewing all things. We like to think of it as the final restoration, that finally God will be with us, that that God will fix all that's wrong, that God will remove all of our pain, that God will finally make everything perfect and restore it to the original condition of the garden. And it is broken because we did break it, right? We could go back, there's, there's some some overlay between what John is saying here at the end in Revelation and what Moses said in the beginning or what God said in the beginning in Genesis. Genesis 1, 1 and 31, it tells us this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw all that he had made and it was, quote, very good. But then we see things turn sideways pretty quickly, don't we? We just look into Genesis chapter 3, just a page later. We see that both Adam and Eve listened to and acted upon the lies of the devil. And they chose to do their own thing rather than obeying God. It's one of the things that I think about all the time. Like, you had one job, my guy, right? Like, Adam and Eve were there and and the garden was going to provide everything that they needed perfectly. And and everything was so perfect that they literally could walk around naked without any fears. Like, let's take the shame component out of that, right? Like, obviously we see that shame comes into the equation because of their sin. But the reality is that they weren't afraid that nature was going to kill them, right? Right? They walked around naked, no fears, everything is great, the world is literally perfect for them. Now, the world is literally trying to kill us. Don't believe me? Anyone fixing to strip down and walk outside today? I mean, forget walking around outside naked right now. Some of you didn't even get up and get dressed to come into church because it was like negative 65 this morning. The world is literally, creation is literally trying to kill us. It's part of what we see in the curse. 
If we look back in Genesis chapter three, we, we read these words following Adam and Eve's fall. We're going to start in verse eight. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the one tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent lied to me and I ate it. So the Lord said to the serpent, because of you've done this and cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or separation between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because of you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree about which I have commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat all the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Did you notice something? This is the first time I noticed this, brief aside. He says, because you listened to your wife, all these bad things have happened. And that's why we have not listened to you since. There's a whole sermon in there, but we'll leave that for later. I kid, I kid. Actually, that is part of the curse, our, our, our refusal to listen to one another. I mean, we see, we see the brokenness of all things in that. I mean, it, it's really categorical. It's not supposed to be, we, we like to focus on, on the, the, the details of it, but really it's, it's showing the brokenness of all things. Eve's curse shows us the reality of the brokenness within our own bodies. That, that within the reproduction and, and, and life, coming from life, that now there's going to be danger and, and there's going to be risk inherent in that. And difficulty That Eve's body, Adam's body, would turn against them. We see that rather than partnering with one another in the garden, in love, that, that God says, now you're going you're gonna to seek to rule over one another. The, the wife is going to want to unseat the husband and take power for herself and the husband is going to want to unseat the wife and take power from the other. You know, a, a lot of denominations will say, well, that's the created order. This is the created order. That, that the man is supposed to be the head and that the woman is supposed to follow. But if we look at throughout scripture, that is, that is a result of the curse. There's not supposed to be who's in charge and who's not in charge, but how do we partner together? It, before the curse, we didn't have to worry about who was in charge because everybody lived in harmony. That everybody was content living within their role and living together in love. But that break happens, right? And Adam throws Eve under the bus as fast as he can. That woman that you gave me, she did it. The woman, she looks for someone to blame. Well, this creation that you made, it deceived me. It 
We see the brokenness of creation in all of its different ways. Creation is, in fact, trying to kill us. It's interesting, if you look in your insurance, a lot of times there will be a, a act of God clause, right? That, that there are certain things that even insurance can't plan for, that there are some things that are beyond man-made mistakes that, why do we call it acts of God, though? Is it not the result of our own failings? We broke it. But here we see John's vision. We see the sky above and the earth below remade as God originally intended. Something that I want to point out to this is we often think of this as being heaven and earth. We see it as two different places. We think of a a new heaven being created, a new place of of heavenly dwelling, and a new earth, a new terrestrial dwelling, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when they talk about the heaven and the earth, they are generally talking about the sky that we can see and the stars above it and the earth below. And, And John is seeing a restoration of that. Although I did have an interesting thought about heaven as a place. You do realize that a heavenly dwelling where we have to go in order to be with God is a result of sin. It is evidence of brokenness. Because if we go back to the beginning of Genesis, we see that God is walking. As a matter of fact, when the fall happens and the curse comes about, God is walking around the garden looking to hang out with Adam and Eve. I mean, he's coming down to kick it with them. They didn't have to wait till they died one day to be physically in God's presence. God joined them in the garden. The need of of some concept or some place where we go to be with God, where we are renewed, is a result of the curse. But what John is talking about is the sky. So we have a renewal of what we can see. Everything that's before us right now, John sees it restored. He sees it remade. He sees God creating a place in a way that he can participate with humanity in life on the earth. A remaking of a place where God can join with them. And we see it moving as it moves through the text to to God being their God and and them being again his people, God being their God and, and them being his children. Is that not what God has been trying to do throughout the entirety of human history? I mean, really, is that not what the Old Testament is all about? And we have to call it the new Jerusalem because God tried to make an old one. And here in verse 2, we see John seeing this holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Again, a new Jerusalem is necessary because we broke the old one. Now, Jerusalem carries with it a double meaning. Jerusalem is the actual city in Israel where God's temple was located and where God promised to be present with his people, right? We can look throughout the Old Testament. We see God brings his people back to the promised land. We go through the kings. We get to David. David says, I want to build a temple. God says, you can't do it. You got too much blood on your hand, but your son is going to do it. So Solomon builds a temple, right? Solomon builds a temple and we can look. There are numerous promises where God, times where God says, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to make this place where I'm going to dwell with you. 
Now, I didn't put these in the notes, but I can give them to you later. You can look them up. Look up how often the, the promise of, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I'll dwell with you so long as you follow me, right? It's Exodus 6-7, Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, Jeremiah 7, 23, Jeremiah 11, 4, Jeremiah 24, 7, Jeremiah 30, 22, Jeremiah 31, 33, Jeremiah 32, 38. Ezekiel 11, 20, Ezekiel 14, 11, Ezekiel 36, 28, Ezekiel 37, 27. These are just a few examples where God uses that exact phrase. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell with them. I mean, this, this is not a new, we, we look at Revelation and we see this as being this brand new thing, but this is a continuation of the work that God has been trying to do on earth that we continue to screw up since the very beginning. God's intent has always been to dwell with us here, now. So Jerusalem is an actual place where God would dwell with his specific people a city on which he would put his name and a people on which he would put his name. Jerusalem, however, is also a symbol of a religious system intended to bring about righteousness in God's people and to bring salvation to the world. We often want to make it one thing or another, right? It's the same thing with the church. We can't just think of the church as a building. A church is also the assembly of the people of God. It is, yes, the one, but it is also the other, and it is very rarely either or. In this case, God is referring, what John is seeing is, is the idea that encompasses all of the above. Jerusalem, again, reminds us of God's continued efforts to restore right relationship with humanity. Through the original Jerusalem, it was through the sacrificial system. God gave an order of events and things that people could do. And, and through the sacrifice of animals, the, the blood of animals would cover the sin of the people. And God would be able to make his glory known and manifest through the city of Jerusalem. And God would continue to work and, and do amazing things and to bring renewal in the world through his people, Israel. But we can look through the Bible and see exactly how that worked out. Humanity failed in dramatic fashion, rejecting God's efforts, disobeying his commandments, killing his prophets and apostles, and opting to go their own way rather than to follow the path that God had laid out for them. In the process, humanity revealed our complete inability to get it right through our own choices. You do recognize that, right? That the brokenness that first came in through the garden came because of human choice. That the manifestations of the curse and the brokenness of the world began to show before God declared anything. We, we think of God as being this vindictive, judging God that is seeking to destroy humanity. And there is coming a time, brothers and sisters, I am, not, I am not avoiding the fact that we will stand before the throne of God and we will answer for whether or not, for our actions or whether or not we believed in Jesus, accepting his grace. There is a hell, and I believe that, that this passage does talk about it. There is a heaven and being able to, to dwell with God. And, and where we go while does depend largely upon our choices. 
Now, God in his grace has made salvation available to everyone. God has made his presence available to everyone, but we have to choose it. We will either choose to accept him or to reject him, to walk with him or to walk away from him. The natural tendency of humanity throughout history is to walk away. The old Jerusalem stands as a reminder of God's efforts to repair what we broke. And humanity's consistent refusal to remain in right relationship with him. And ultimately, our inability to participate in fixing it on our own. What makes this new heaven, this new earth, and new Jerusalem new is not actually the place itself, but the presence of God abiding within it. See, we like to look at this passage, and I I admit that that's what I did as well, that I look at this passage, and I want to focus on the place. I want to focus on on heaven and a new earth and, and going somewhere else because in my mind, I cannot imagine this world truly being renewed. I see limitations. If I'm honest, I see limitations on God's ability to fix what we've broken. But as we look at this and as we consider Revelation chapter 21, the the wording matters. The word here used for new in these verses is the word kine. It refers to something that is fresh or new in quality. Now, if John wanted to describe something that was new in time or space, he would have used the word neos. That it was a a new thing altogether. This is not a new thing. This is something that that is new in quality, that has been refreshed, that has been restored. Might actually be better to say it was made like new. God promises in verse 3, he says, as this new heaven and new earth are coming down and, and the new holy city are coming down out of heaven. He says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. Well, there's that verse that I talked about just a moment ago that we see throughout the Old Testament about God coming to dwell with humanity. And God God's presence brings about the the ultimate in this text. And this is where we have to look and say, there's further further manifestation of this than what we currently have seen. Well, there has to be. Because as we look at this text, what John is indicating is that God's presence with us and amongst us removes all evil. It doesn't just eliminate evil, it it eliminates the very source of evil and all signs that it ever existed. Well, why do I say that? Well, do you notice if we look in verse 1 of chapter 21, John sees a new heaven, a new earth, for the old are no more. And then there's an important line there at the end that just seems like it doesn't make any sense. At least it didn't to me. He says, and there was no more sea. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of heaven, I don't think of a place without a sea. As a matter of fact, when I think of paradise, the sea is kind of an essential component. Right? The closest that I can get to paradise on earth, to heaven on earth, is a beach in central Florida. That's what I'm talking about. 
Let me sit by the ocean, listen to the waves, and contemplate the reality of life. That is as close to heaven as I get. But here we see this concept of heaven that we often think about, and there's no sea. Why is there no sea? Well, if we look back into Revelation 13 and Revelation 20, we see that the sea is actually a place that's not not very good. It's not a place we want to go. This isn't a sea that we'd want to sit by. Revelation 13, 1, the great enemy of God and his people, the beast, comes from where? The sea. Revelation 20, 13, the sea is connected with Hades and death. It's where all of the dead dwell and death itself is personified by the sea. Again, not exactly an idyllic location. Not someone we want to set up our vacation condo. It's a place of death and destruction, the source of evil. It's what John's trying to symbolize. It's a symbol of evil. And evil cannot persist in the presence of God. John says it's gone. All these evil things that we've seen back before all this, in the book of Revelation, all of the evil of humanity, all of it's gone. It's been undone. Its effect has been removed from the face of the earth. Verse 4, it goes on further. He says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I got to be honest, this is the verse that I can't place in all of this. Because pain clearly still exists, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I still feel it. And the older I get, the more of it I feel. This week, JJ decided he was going to jump onto me on, on the couch. I was laying there minding my own business. JJ comes flying over the arm of the couch like a wrestling superstar and puts me in a headlock. At that point, I have a couple of choices. I can tap like a sissy and admit that he's the man of the house. Or I can reestablish my dominance. So I opted to reestablish my dominance. I twisted my body up underneath him, got my arm underneath him, and went to lift him up, which I did, mind you. But at the same time, I felt just a little tweak in my back. And after I dropped him on the couch, having proved that I was still the man of the house, I limped off like a broken pup. Pain, I still feel it today. Pain still exists in this world. Not just physical pain, but sadness. The reality of tears are, are still there. The, the hurt of loss is still here. We still experience that. And this text talks about a glorious day. And we love this passage because it, it, it symbolizes and it shows for us the, the finality of God's restorative work as God not only restores the reality of a broken world around us, but broken relationships and, and undoes the reality of death. And I fully believe that there is coming a time where all of these things will be seen in full. But is this not what Jesus himself accomplished? I mean, as I read this text, one of the things that I struggle with as I continue to look at it is I'm, like, I'm thinking and I'm thinking, is this not what Jesus did? I mean, is that not what we just celebrated at Christmas? The reality that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Did we not celebrate that God came, condescended, lived on the earth, and that God dwells with us? 
Do we not preach and believe that when someone comes to faith in Christ, that the very living spirit of God dwells within us, that God sojourns among us? I mean, is, it, is, is waiting for a time where we get to be in the presence of God, is it really, is it really a physicality thing? I mean, is the promise of God predicated on God physically being with us? Or, or are we already recipients? Have we already received this in part? Are we already, or might we say progressively, are we already receiving parts of this? Yes, death, death is still a reality we have to deal with and the sadness thereof. But do we not say at funerals that this is not the end? Yes, we can, we can deal with the sadness of separation from a, for a moment, but we understand that this separation is but momentary. So we celebrate that life, though it appears to have ended here, continues to go on. And this life is but a mist and a vapor, and one day we will be together again. Do we not say that at funerals? Is that, has death not already been undone? Yes, we still see the reality of brokenness. And I do believe that there will be a time when the joy of our salvation will no longer be something that we have to long for in any part, but something that we physically experience in real time that we can see and feel all the time. But God is already in the process of doing what this text talks about. This isn't just something that happens later. It is something that is happening now, that heaven is now coming down to earth. We just sang it. I want to see heaven, so let your kingdom come. Jesus himself told us to pray, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get to verse five and Jesus calls out from the throne. It says he said, he was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Jesus is making all things new. This is a line that has come up every sermon that we've done on renewal over the last couple of weeks. And, and I can't avoid it and I don't apologize for bringing it up. I want to remind us early and often because we need to remember, Jesus changes everything. Do we believe that? Do we believe that faith in Jesus, that the power and presence of the risen Lord living within us by faith changes everything? Do we believe that the, the shed blood of Jesus undid the penalty and, and the power of sin and death? Do we believe that Christ continues to strive and work for our renewal, for our good and for his glory? Do we believe that? If we do, then heaven has truly come to earth. And yes, we have hope of a heavenly reward and we don't know what that looks like. This is what I always went to, but I don't know that that's what it's describing. I do believe that I will see Jesus face to face, but I believe that I am supposed to live as if Jesus is with me right now. Jesus is the key to trading the old for the new. One of the things I love about this is the grammar of it. 
See, Jesus could have said, if this is in fact the coup de gras, right? If in fact this is the end of the ends, that this is God bringing down from heaven a new earth and a new heaven and a new Jerusalem, and it is actually a, a physical dissension where it comes down and everything is over, full stop, this is the end. Wouldn't Jesus have said, because John has seen it, right? John is in the vision and he sees the, the new heaven and new earth coming down and the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. But do you notice that John never sees it land? As a matter of fact, if you look throughout the Bible, every time you see the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, it's always coming. It's never here. It's always in progress. And Jesus himself says, Look, I am making all things new. Jesus isn't waiting to work on this issue later. It is currently a work in progress. And the means to the end has been accomplished. Jesus says in verse 6, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Is that not exactly what the Gospels tell us? I mean, is that not literally what Je Jesus tells to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Hey, look, if you had known the gift of God that was standing before you, you would have asked him and that he would have given you the water of life that would have welled up to springs of life flowing out of you. Is that not exactly what Jesus is saying here? I mean, we've already received this. We don't have to wait for this. The springs of living water should already be flowing. God has already given them. It's not just a hope for later. It is a present reality. And Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm, I'm both places. And it's been completed. Again, that makes me think it's different wording, but it makes me think back to what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. See, the end is certain. And the means has been achieved. It is for us now to live in it. To live in that means, understanding that the end will take care of itself and God's good grace. Jesus did all that was necessary to make our renewal possible to enable us to bring about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Jesus also promises uh, something that will come later, that, that those that are victorious will inherit all of this. Well, what is all of this? Well, it connects us back to the beginning of Revelation when Jesus is talking to the churches in, in, in Jesus' conversation with the churches, we can look back and there's, there's a line in each of them about to the victorious I will give. And, and I, I'd like to read those to you. In Revelation 2.7, it says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, that's interesting because what was lost is now given back. 2.17, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Essentially, that white stone is the ticket to heaven. It is, it is the same symbology that would be used for a temple and the temple having God's name on it. It's, it's a membership in God's family and kingdom. 
to 11, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Well, here it talks about at the end of Revelation 21, that the second death, this lake of burning fire and sulfur. Revelation 2.26, the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. I will also give that person the morning star. Revelation 3.5, the one who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out that name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Revelation 3.12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write them on the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my name. Revelation 3.21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. All of this comes at no cost to us. And all of it, according to other scriptures, has both a now and a later component. These are gifts that God is not withholding from us now. We can already know that our, our eternity is secure, that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and that one day we will dwell with him. But we also can know that he is dwelling with and caring for us right now. See, this is a glorious promise that looks forward, and we want to look forward to a place where we get to be with God physically. And that is always going to be our longing, this side of heaven. But I think that more importantly, this text, like the rest of the book of Revelation, is concerned with how do we live in a tumultuous and world full of tribulation and trials? What do we do now? Well, we live by faith. And we follow and we lean into the promises of God. And Jesus gives us a choice that we have to make here in Revelation 21. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's a choice to be made. This is a warning for now. Will we humble ourselves and accept the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ? He says, there's no cost. This water is yours. If you accept it, if you receive it, it's yours. But you know what? Just as has always been the case, we can go our own way. You can do your own thing. You can pursue your own means. You can do what feels right. You can do what seems right to you in the moment. And by doing so, you will seal yourself for eternity. We like to get caught up on, on the categories of things that are said in the text about who are those that don't believe. But let's not get it twisted. This is not about the acts explicitly mentioned. It is about a heart. It is about a choice to either follow or to go our own way, which has been the reality throughout Scripture. See, as I consider the reality of this new Jerusalem and this new creation and this restored heaven and earth, I do believe that God is one day going to restore all of creation and that all of the signs of brokenness will be gone. 
but I believe that's happening on this earth. I also further believe that God is actively doing that right now. And that when this passage talks about the reality of a new Jerusalem coming down to an actively being restored earth, that it is not talking about a place, that it is talking about a people. Jerusalem is not just some far off city we have to wait for. It is a people that God is building now. And we are the new Jerusalem. We are the purveyors of God's peace. We are those that bring the good news of great joy. We are those that do the work of reconciliation and restoration. And we are the evidence of God's power and presence, not for the world later, but in the world right now. The living water is meant not just to flow to us, but from us, refreshing and renewing a dead and dying world. See, Jesus is making all things new. His coming reversed the curse and opened avenues for salvation and restoration to take place in and through his people. I believe that God is preparing an eternal home for us. Jesus said as much in John 14, and it will be a paradise. And I think this text does give us some ideas about that, but I don't, I don't know that that's what it's talking about. I think it's talking about hope for today and realities we live in now. The encouragement I continue to come to as I look at this text is this. We need to be careful not to get lost in longing for a place far off in some far off day at the extent of the people we are called to be right now. It's one of the struggles I have with some of the great hymns of the faith is that so many of them toss the reward and the reality of what God's trying to do into the future. It points to that salvation that happened then that we experienced and reminds us of what God will do later. But what about now? People are hurting now. Tribulation is around. Forget some seven years of tribulation that might or might not come later. Some seven years of tribulation that we might or might not have to endure. Forget about some rapture that we might or might not. I'm not saying that those things are unimportant, but I am saying that, that to focus on those things at the expense of the reality that we are to live right now is a mistake. That God has a plan and a purpose and everything I see that is promised in Revelation 21 has been provided through the work and person of Jesus Christ. We can experience it today. We can make it available to the world today. We can sit back and complain about the brokenness of the, wor of the world around us or we can get out there and we can do something to try to make it better. Can we fix it all? No, but we don't have to because it's completed. Jesus has done finished it and he's the beginning and the end. While we can't fix it, while we can't fathom it, we can do the little that we can and God will work in and through us. Much of God's work does have now and later components. I submit to you that our primary focus should be on right now the only moment in which we have to make a difference is now. The only time that we have to manifest the power and presence of God to a world that needs to be renewed and restored is today. 
May we step out with faith and follow our God, trusting that the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth are coming, that they continue to descend down to earth in and through us. And may we be the people of God. May we be the new Jerusalem that that manifests God's presence in miraculous and amazing ways, bringing life and light to those who'd believe. And may we choose to consistently follow him every day of our lives. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. I thank you for the hope of your word. God, I thank you for the hope of heaven that you have gone to prepare a place for us. But Lord, may we remember that you consistently seek to make a place through us. May we be your people. May we be your church. May we be your bride. May we be your holy city, your new Jerusalem. Lord, may we be a place of grace and compassion, a place of righteousness and truth, a place of love and hope. May the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and the reality of the risen Lord continue to define our lives and remake our existence. Lord, continue to bring life in us and through us. Continue to restore us and to use us to restore the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.